Okay, hello everybody. I'm very excited today to be here with E. Michael Jones. Uh, how are you today, sir? I'm doing fine. Excellent. Well, I've uh, you have helped me develop my understanding of um, a good range of topics over the last three years. So, so I'm very excited to talk to you. And we could talk about, I mean, all manner of things, any of the subject of your books. Um, but I, I do want to get your perspective on what's going on in the world right now in terms of the lockdowns and the tyranny that we're all under and this vaccination rollout. Right. Well, last night, President Biden gave a speech in which he says his patience is wearing thin uh, and he's going to impose a mandate, a vaccine mandate on all firms over uh, uh, having 100 employees and he's going to take on the Republican governors. Well, this is an ambitious program for someone who just botched the uh, evacuation from Afghanistan. And uh, everybody turned against him. Uh, by everyone, I mean the New York Times, uh, the, the, the general, the press in general, uh, turned against him. Uh, so everyone, I think, now realizes that this is a political, this is a political game here that's going on here. And the first thing we need to know is that this is an attack on representative government. It has always been an attack on representative government. It's never been anything but an attack on representative government. And it, th this attack began years ago, 2015, the whole uh, uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, proposed by the governor of Indiana, then uh, Mike Pence, who went on to become vice president. Uh, was immediately perceived by the oligarchs as uh, uh, something impermissible. And the oligarchs, by whom I mean in this particular instance, big tech, in particular Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff, parachuted into uh, Indianapolis and told them, revoke your law. And the stupid uh, lawmakers of Indiana didn't see what was going on. They should have said, basically, this is an attack on representative government and uh, officer arrest that man and take him out and shoot him for treason, for trying to overthrow the government. It began five years, six years ago. <laughs> it's still going on. It's the same people. The tech oligarchs can rule the world now. Ireland, classic example, uh, a country that was conquered by Google, and they don't even know it for the most part. So the COVID, um, the COVID whole the whole COVID story is basically fundamentally uh, irrational. It's irrational. And to give you the best example of irrationality, uh, this obnoxious Jew by the name of Howard Stern, who has his own radio show, who uses it to promote smut and subvert the morals of young people, uh, has announced, uh, fuck your freedom to the, to the anti-vaxxers. I want to be free. You are causing me, uh, uh, you are threatening me with your disease. Wait a minute, Howard. T take a deep breath, okay? Now let's step back here. If you're vaccinated, you can't get the disease, right? What's, what's the purpose of the vaccination otherwise? If I have uh, immunity, I can't get it either. So what's the problem here? There... <laughs> This is, you, we have reached this point of total incoherence, and this only makes my point 
that this is not about medicine. It's about an attack on representative government. That's what's going on. Well, I understand it as an attack on our God-given rights and our ability to choose and um, and have personal sovereignty. And I'm blown away by how quickly the discourse has moved, how quickly uh, they've moved down the age ranges that they want to get these jabs into. And right now in the UK, me and the other people that are concerned about this are just terrified about the fact that this is coming for children very, very soon who... Uh, even according to the official narrative, suffer basically no risk right. of dying from COVID. And uh, and what I'm really struggling with, and all the people that feel the same way as me, is logic doesn't seem to work on, on the opposition or the sleeping herds. To me, it's incredibly obvious that this utilitarian perspective of using children as human shields to apparently protect the vulnerable older people is just sick, twisted and wrong. And if one child dies as a result of these jabs, well, that was preventable. Whereas if an old person catches COVID, you couldn't have said, well, that was because that child caught it. It's the, this utilitarian mindset. I'm flabbergasted that the world has fallen for it. And I don't really know how to how to fight for reason again. Well, this is the the cunning of reason. We have to talk about how, how God works uh, in human history, and God works uh, through uh, opposition. So this, this was a mistake. Biden has really made a mistake here because he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to take out all of these Republican governors. Well, wait a minute. That's, you can say it, but are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? And, and by, by stating the case this way, you've automatically created political opposition. Because these people are not going to go along with it. Uh, well, I'm talking about Governor DeSantis in Florida, who's probably the, the, the ringleader of the whole thing. He called Biden uh, when Biden tried to uh, make vaccine mandates uh, norms for cruise ships going out of Florida. And then he was going to deny airlines the ability to fly to Florida. Well, this is serious. OK, this is a serious constitutional issue here. So he calls him up and says, look, uh, you can't do this, uh, Joe. And Biden says, uh, please refer to me as Mr. President. And then DeSantis said, go fuck yourself. And he hung up the phone. Now, that, that's that's the conflict that's going on right now. And now Biden is pressing the issue. And he's going to have a full blown constitutional crisis on his hands if he goes along with this thing and a constitutional crisis that is based on no medical foundation whatsoever so as soon as we start getting into the reality of the situation it turns out that the the most highly vaccinated places in the united states are also the places that have the highest incidence of covid infection how is that possible it's not only the united states it's the entire world I just got a report from uh, Kerala in India. Kerala has the highest vaccination rate in India, and it's got the highest infection rate in India. And then the, the next part of the story comes out. It's also got the lowest ivermectin use rate in India. And it turns out that ivermectin is a prescribed remedy for COVID in, according to the Indian medical establishment, and every place else in India where they prescribed ivermectin, it solved the problem. Now, 
as soon as you get into some type of legal battle, you're going to have to deal with issues like this. And I think he's going to lose because we have now reached the point where the local government is now rising in power uh, because the empire is failing. The whole point of the empire is you have to you have to unify the population in support of the empire so you can project power outward. Well, Afghanistan fell. Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires, and there's going to have there's going to be a ripple effect now throughout the United States, and the ripple effect is going to be the rise of regional government and the decline of federal government. And Biden may have very well uh, aided and abetted this decline himself. The other straw in the wind is Texas. Texas is also resisting uh, the national trend. Texas just passed an abortion bill, an anti-abortion bill, uh, making it illegal to have an abortion after six weeks. It's weak. I mean, it's full of flaws. You can't defend it according to principle, but it's a step in the right direction. And the media are now freaking out. They're freaking out. It's the end of the world as we know it. How can we have freedom if you can't kill your own kid? This is a type of freak out that happens periodically. But now, wait a minute. Uh, there's no Ruth Bader Ginsburg anymore on the Supreme Court. It's Amy Coney Barrett. And now the, the Supreme Court, let that stand. So the Supreme Court is in a situation with abortion. We've had this for over 40 years now. It's never going to be resolved. You will never have a time when the United States of America is going to say with one voice, abortion is murder or abortion is the greatest thing to ever happen to women in history. It's never going to happen. You're going to have a division now. The people who gave us Roe versus Wade, who gave us abortion, have created this division and it's not going to go away. So if you're living in New York City, abortion is a sacrament, as uh, Andrew Cuomo used to say. Didn't use those words, but it's uh, this is the language that they use. If you're living uh, in California, same thing. If you're living any place in the middle, it's not that way. And you've got state after state saying, we are going to uh, at, at least limit abortion. That's what they did in Florida, in Texas. Mississippi is next. These are the people now that are going to rise up, and this is going to be the return of representative government. It's got to happen. Otherwise, we all go under, and you can just kiss everything goodbye. Yeah, if we could focus on, on Texas and what's going on at the moment. I'm in the UK, so I don't have a good judge of this, but is the outrage uh, that's coming from this new change in the abortion laws, is it coming generally from outside Texas rather than inside yeah. Texas? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, basically, it's, it's the Jewish-controlled media. The Jews gave us abortion, and they are defending it. Some lady texted. I, I, I commented on it on Twitter or whatever I'm, I'm using now. Um, she said, uh, I am Jewish and the state of Czech, Texas just restricted my freedom to exercise my religion. So I said, well, wait a minute. This, this proves what I've been saying all along, that abortion is a Jewish sacrament. And what happened with Roe versus Wade is the Jews imposed their opinion, their religious views on the entire country of the United States of America. And now it's unraveling. Ruth Bader Ginsburg has gone 
to her whatever it is, her eternal reward. She's not there to defend us anymore. It was a sacrament for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's a sacrament for this lady uh, that I just mentioned. But that's not my religion. Okay, if you ask me about my religion, it's it's a crime. It's a sin. So how are we going to resolve this? Well, the Supreme Court is in the situation where they have to resolve this and they're going to resolve it by states rights. That's what's going to happen here. States rights. That's the most awful thing you can say, because that was used to justify segregation in the South 60 years ago. But there's no choice in this matter. We're going to have to go back to states rights. And if you don't like it, in Texas, honey, move to New York. That's what's going to be. Yeah, and that's what I found so interesting about it was that um, when the uh, the people that support abortion are getting outraged about this, well, they presumably live in a state where it's still perfectly legal and they're allowed to do what they want. They they are all about imposing their will and their worldview on absolutely everybody else. Is that fair to say? Right. That's that's exactly what happened, and it didn't work. Because you cannot, it's not going to happen. The United States of America is never going to have a unified position on this. Okay? So what I'm saying is the same thing. They're following the same playbook for COVID now. And it's not going to work. Look, if it's unraveling on abortion, it's not going to work on COVID. Because now we know, look, abortion, that was medicine. Remember? No, it's not medicine. It's the opposite of medicine. And COVID is the opposite of medicine. It's social engineering. Abortion was social engineering. COVID is social engineering. And we have to wake up to that fact and start resisting it at the state level. The Republicans have a golden opportunity right now to clean up in the next election, which is a year from now, the midterm elections. They will clean up if they take a firm stand on COVID as they are taking on abortion. Okay. Now, no one ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the Republican Party, okay? And proof of that is Mike Pence, who just went on TV, he was on Fox News this morning commenting on Biden's decision, saying absolutely all of the wrong things, completely getting it completely wrong, completely wrong. Mike, shut up. I'll tell you what to say. This is about representative government. Don't get into the science. You don't know shit from Shinola when it comes to science yourself. This is not about science. It's about representative government. It's about the Democrats now reversing themselves 180 degrees from what they were saying when Trump was in office and now using this to destroy any opposition to their policies in the United States. That's what it's about. Mm. Okay, so... um... I, I'm fascinated by what has happened in the last 18 months um, in terms of the polarization of society and the split in society. Um, as far as I can tell, and how it looks to me down here, there are there's a certain percentage of people, a small percentage, that understand the gravity of what happened, um, what was imposed on us from the oligarchs. And everyone else is just asleep to it. And there were political dissidents from before that I was listening to that I thought were, you know, I thought they were right on a few things that completely missed the boat on this one. And then there's a bunch of people that understood that this was a hoax, that this was a control mechanism and saw it for what it was. And I I definitely believe that it, there's a spiritual component to this and it's to do with 
whether you understand natural law and things like this. But at the same time, there, there is a really healthy Christian component to the resistance. But there's loads of people that appear to be speaking the truth and following Logos, I guess, who do not consider themselves Christian. And loads and loads of Christians who are wearing masks and don't see any problem with vaccine passports. Right. And I'm struggling to square that circle. Yes. Well, uh, uh, I think basically the problem is you've got a kind of puritanical understanding of what the church is. The church is not the visible elect on earth. The church is a, a congregation of sinners and 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 uh, logos. <laughs> let's put it. I've already said look, the church is the cutting edge of logos in human history. Does that mean at any one point in time, uh, the billion people who are in the church understand like 99 percent of them understand what's going on or that they are the only people who have access to logos or no it doesn't work that way. i wish it were that simple the puritans tried to do that you had to be the visible elect on earth to become a member of the church well that's really stupid and it failed miserably in america they the british had sense enough to basically dig up cromwell's body and chop his head off and they've never found his head since. There was a total repudiation of Puritanism in England, but there wasn't in America. It, it continued. It continued, and it continues to this day. And so what you have now is identity politics is basically the, the descendant of this Puritan idea of, of, uh, of Loga, of, of the elect. Okay? So, I mean, basically, so to get back to this, we have a terrible situation in the church right now, a terrible situation because we have the Jesuits running the Catholic church. No, no one has defended the cat. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. No one has defended the Catholic church more on the internet than I have over these past few years. I have told people to get, when they ask me advice, I told them to go get baptized. If you're not baptized, come back to the church because it's a cutting edge of logos in human history. And I believe that. But we have a situation where the Jesuits are now running the Catholic Church. And what does that mean? The Jesuits are basically the proxy warriors for the oligarchs. All you have to do is look at the conferences the Jesuits have held in at the Vatican. The Jesuits uh, in America, America Magazine, okay? They're Americanists. We have people like James Martin who is promoting the sexual, using the Jesuits to promote the homosexual agenda. And nothing is, no one is stopping him. And the Pope is applauding him. The Pope will give him a private audience. This is a, a catastrophic state uh, of a situation. I, I had, uh, when I get to heaven, if I ever get there, I'll ask God what he had in mind here. But that this is the situation. We have to have some type of real uh, uh, honest uh, uh, description of what's going on. It's a disaster. Uh, just to give you the the latest debacle, the Pope is going to Slovakia, okay, as a condition for going to the papal mass in Slovakia, you had to pre be fully vaccinated. Well, wait a minute. Who gave the right, uh, who gave the Pope this right? He has no right to tell you this. He has no right to, to preside infallibly over your medical decisions, okay? Especially in this situation. So that's bad enough that he said that. And then it turns out, well, wait a minute. It looks as if nobody's coming to the papal mass. They expected 300,000 people and then only 30,000 people requested tickets. And so that's going to look terrible. So what did he do? He reversed the decision. 
Well, wait a minute. This, you, if, if it was really as serious as you said in the first place, you're condemning all these people to die of COVID because when they come to your mask. Well, I guess you don't believe that, do you? Because if you did, you couldn't allow it. But you're allowing it uh, because no one's going to come and that will make you look bad. This is a, this is a disaster. This disastrous decisions that are being made right now. Uh, doesn't change the fact of what I said about the church or about God or anything else. It's just bad, just a sign of how chaotic the times that we live in are. So do you have any advice for people? I've met tons of people and myself included who've come to Jesus Christ in the in the past few years. Um, and yet we look around our local churches and they don't they don't really represent us. Um what what do you think is going to happen? Because I think these people who who frankly get it and think about their faith a little deeper are desperately trying to find one another at the moment. But obviously, most churches are lacking. Now, when you say most churches, I don't I don't know what you mean because you can go to a parish and the ma- the priest will say mass, and that sac that sac those sacraments will give you grace that will nourish your soul whether he believes uh, in any of the things that I just said, because the sacraments function ex opere operata. And even if the man is a well, we're all sinners, okay, but uh, an unrepentant sinner, the, 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 the words of consecration still work. So you have to have this type of sophisticated understanding of what the, what the church is and how it operates. It is not, if it were dependent solely on human agency, it would have collapsed a long time ago. This is the the story is of uh, Napoleon. He tells the Pope, "I'm going to destroy the Catholic Church." And the Pope says, "Look, if the bishops haven't destroyed it already, you're not going to succeed." This is the type of realism that we need to bring to this thing, you know. And secondly, I don't want to badmouth a priest. I uh, you, you go to a mass, you'll find a priest who was a serious man for the most part, doing the best he can. Uh, uh, and, spy, uh, and in addition to what I just said about uh, the sacraments operating ex opere operata, we have to face the situation. The situation here is, uh, I don't know whether you know this guy, Morgoth. He sounds like a Scottish guy. I don't know yep. whether you know him. Uh, anyway, he just did a video and he's really down. Uh, I suspect he's a white guy. I, I suspect he was some kind of pagan at some point or other. And at this point, he's now saying the magnitude of the evil that we are facing right now is beyond human means to stop. We need some type of spiritual help. I think that was the gist of what he said. And Well, guess what? You're not going to get it by praying to Thor. It's not going to work. And I, think I don't that, believe I guess, that. I was going to say I don't believe that they generally do. You see a lot of a lot of people in the pagan wing, but I don't. I don't think. I don't know. I think it's just a reaction because they don't want Christianity or they don't right. want to. And that. I know, and I know why you don't want Christianity, because you want to screw whomever you want whenever you want. That's, let's be honest here about this whole thing. I understand that, but it's not going to lead you to happiness. And the times are way advanced, and we're in deep doo doo right now. The entire world is in deep doo-doo, and you, we need spiritual help. And you're not going to get it from Thor or or the white guys. Yeah, now would be a great time to um, to just delve into what people get wrong about um, your perspective on the white race. Let's let's use that phrase um, because I've I've been watching you for two or three years, and I've I think I understand what what you're saying here. Is I mean. 
I mean, in your conception, the white race or white people is a category like tall people. Is that fair to say? Whereas um, things like the English are rooted in a place and you can say what they are. And this category of white is used to lump everyone together and therefore attack them as a big as a big group. So I've been using the example of the Welsh recently. If you call them the Welsh, then they're an impoverished minority who's never had much money or much power. Um, whereas if they're white, then you can accuse them of having white privilege and holding this oppressive right. power. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Is that a good good That's summary? Good. That's exactly what I've been saying here. That's a, uh, so white. Uh, race is a category of the mind, which gets imposed on categories of reality, like the shape of your nose and the color of your skin for political purposes. That's right. That's exactly that's exactly what it is. So, you know, you could talk about uh, uh, what being left handed. Uh, and there maybe there it's called sinistra in Italian and sinister. So uh, but nobody really takes that seriously. Uh, so, so some physical characteristics are completely meaningless. Some have been weaponized, and I'm saying white and race has been weaponized. Now, it's weaponized. It used to be weaponized in favor of white people uh, against black people. Now it's weaponized in favor of black people against white people. And so the example I've given many times is that battle over the statue in St. Louis. The guy who was trying to get the statue torn down uh, uh, said that the people who were at the statue were white supremacists because he knew if he could make that label stick, he would win the battle. So I entered this discussion. I said, wait a minute, those, those white supremacists are all praying the rosary. Since when do white supremacists pray the rosary? Oh, oh, wait a minute, they're Catholics. Oh, suddenly this is a, a different situation now. So what he was engaging in is identity theft. He's trying to steal their real ethnic identity because Catholic in the United States of America is an ethnic designation, according to the triple melting pot. Okay, steal your real identity because he knows he can't win on that court, uh, on on those grounds. And so when I exposed what was going on, I had a debate with this guy Umar Lee. Tried exposed what was going on. He lost. He lost. Mm. And, and that statue. I know that because the statue is still standing. And I'm saying there's a lesson to be learned here. If you want to grab your spear, you know, and charge the machine gun nest, uh, you go ahead. You can uh, look what happened in Charlottesville. That's exactly what happened in Charlottesville because these white boys all felt that they had were protected by the Constitution. And they should have been protected by the Constitution because they are American citizens. They should have had that protection. But de facto, you don't. So wake up and smell the coffee, guys. And if you identify this, you're basically internal this way. You're internalizing the commands of your oppressors and you'll lose. Now, when I say that, people say, oh, you're a race traitor. No, I'm not. I'm not white. I never was white. I'm half Irish and half German. And that's the way I grew up. I had a real ethnic identities behind me. OK, they speak, you know, uh, and they were mixed. Because that's what happens when you come to America. You know, your Irish, uh, my Irish grandfather came to America in 1900, and it never occurred to him to marry any other woman than an Irish woman. He met her in America. He met her in Philadelphia. He didn't meet her over in, in Ireland. 
but that's just the way they were. And if you were Polish, well, you had to do it because you probably didn't speak English. So how are you going to talk to your wife? Well, that's that generation. And then he has children, all of my father's family. They're all Irish. But yet now, only one of them married another Irishman. So they married Germans, and they married Italians, and they married Poles. Well, what did they have in common? They were all Catholic. That's what the issue was at that point. And by the third, so this is, I'm telling you about the, the triple melting pot, which is the theory of ethnic identity in America. By the third generation, uh, uh, my mother was, their family was here a little bit longer. She didn't speak a word of German. Okay. She was 100% DNA German. She didn't speak a word of German and she was American. That was her identity. Okay. Mm. That's the triple melting pot means by the third generation, your religion is your identity because you don't speak that la a language other than English anymore. And even if you did, what language are you supposed to speak when you're half Irish and half German? What language do I speak then? I do speak fluent German because I lived in Germany and I was drawn to Germany because probably because of my family. Okay. Uh, and uh, so I do... My mother, I'm not, I'm more German than my mother because I speak German. My mother, my late mother, she's deceased now. She was 100% German according to DNA, but she wasn't German because she didn't speak the language. These are the realities that the race crowd simply cannot fathom. They cannot fathom this. Well, I, I think that what they're struggling with is because religion is a faith-based thing and you can adopt it at any point that they struggle with that having any link to genetics um, because it doesn't have any link to doesn't. genetics. But at the same time, um, religious, well, sorry, ethnic groups are for the most part religious rather, whereas a racialist would consider them purely a national thing. They would consider an ethnic group. You mean, like a, bi you mean a biological thing? You mean a biological oh. thing? Well, is it fair to say that um, what what the racialists would group as group as like races or ethnic groups, they're completely missing out what actually holds uh, what produces families, frankly, all over the world, which is religion. Um, whether it's uh, Christianity. No, wait, no, wait, wait, wait. We got to we got to clarify this here. The family is the basic cell of society. The family is a biological union between man and woman that produces offspring. Okay, now when you you don't learn your language, you learn your language from your mother. Okay, your mother did not invent that language. Okay, the ethnic group is the source of the language, and the ethnic group is the source of your identity. So your identity is basically comes from your mother speaking to you, your uh, uh, speaking the language called the Muttersprache in German. This is the the mother tongue, what your mother speaks. That's where you get your ethnic identity. Your mother did not invent that language. It has nothing to do with biology. Okay, that's not to deny that there's a biological component that you inherited from your mother and your father. That's obvious. Okay, but we're talking about a higher level now. Now, if you go to a place, you go to Africa, where you you have a simpler, more natural situation. The United States is always confusing because it's an immigration country. People come from all over. You go to Africa, you have 76 different ethnic groups in Tanzania and more in Kenya and even more in Nigeria. Okay, what is the distinguishing characteristic? 
it's the language they speak. They look identical. I mean, maybe it's me, but they all look the same to me. They're all black. They all look pretty much the same, but they can distinguish themselves from each other because of the language that they speak. That's ethnic identity, okay? It has nothing to do with biology. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. So ev everything that you uh, apply to the word white, you would also apply to the word black in this right. context, right? Right. It has no meaning other white has no meaning aside from black black has no meaning aside from white norwegian has a meaning all by itself mm. okay lithuanian has a meaning all by itself it's not a comparative term it's not a relative term it's an absolute term which is the category of reality because there is a language called lithuanian which is the basis of their identity that's the difference that i'm talking about yes and white nationalism is is it's a very funny concept and i think it's been um it's been hawked onto other nations like mine as an Americanism um, because our, you know, anti-immigration wing over here has, has basically been called white nationalism. And and as, as far as I'm concerned, there are a lot of Eastern Europeans who have undercut the labor in this country. And a lot of the people that voted for Brexit to limit immigration are concerned about that. And right. these are white people, but we're being right. told that it's just against white people. Right. And there's an anti-white agenda. So, yeah. well, that's that's to confuse you. I think I think that people like Jared Taylor uh, do it deliberately uh, uh, to con to 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 confuse people and to co to contribute to the oligarchic narrative. So, in the second part of my debate uh, with Jared, I brought up. I said, "Look, Jared, are Jews white?" Well. He didn't know what to say. You know what? That's kind of a secret. You're not supposed to polite people don't say things like this. I was not supposed to bring. I was just supposed to talk about IQ and science and all. No, no. The real question is, are Jews white? Because that's what's going on here. Okay. Now, where you look now, let's let's take uh, racial conflict in South Africa. That's pretty clear. Black, white, terrible situation. Wait a minute. You're missing a point here. It was the Jews who created that situation. George Galloway knows this because he was involved with them and he said it publicly. When he was fighting apartheid in South Africa, it was all Jews involved in that. It's the same thing in America, okay? Beginning with the lynching of Leo Frank, the Jews tried to create race war in the United States by turning black people into revolutionaries. That's Brown versus School Board all the way up to today. It hasn't changed. George Soros gave $33 million to Black Lives Matter. Is George Soros white? Are you suggesting that this this phrasing everything as white and black is a camouflage method? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> you can't understand anything. So is George Soros white or not, Jared? Well, of course he's white. Well, then if he's white, what's the problem? We're on the same team, aren't we? Well, no. No, you can't understand anything about what's going on from South Africa to Philadelphia to wherever. England as well. You got all of this, the, these sellouts, uh, basically nationalist parties who sell out to the Israelis, sell out to the Jews, and betray their own people by talking about this as if it's a white-black issue when it's not. You brought up a good point. Okay, what about the polls in Ireland? Okay, big presence in Ireland, and you bring a lot of people like this in. They are they are compatible. I mean, in terms of religion, they're both Catholic, uh, at least nominally. OK, but you bring a lot of people in, they're going to cut undercut wages and you're going to cause problems that way. Now, it's not going to be a problem. 
after three years, three generations, because they'll be all intermarried. You'll marry some Polish chick and you'll have mixed Irish Polish children and everything will work out over the long haul. But we're not talking about the long haul. We're talking about the short haul right now. And if you overburden a culture with mass migration, you're threatening the, the existence of the culture. And I experienced this in Philadelphia growing up. Okay, when they when the Ford Foundation, wait a minute, John J. McCloy, he's whiter than I am. And he's the one who's orchestrating the black migration up from North and South Carolina to destroy Catholic neighborhoods in Philadelphia. How am I supposed to deal with this on a black white uh, basis? Can't deal with it. You can't understand it. Can't understand what's going on. Yes, because, um, uh, well, I think that they um, they stick with this conception of white because it's got the broadest appeal. So you can have people all over the world being on the same team, which is the team that the white guy's on. So um, so Frody and Jared can be on the same team, even though they're com in completely different countries uh, with right. completely different battles. So, you know, that's my fundamental problem with it, is the oligarchs are globalists that want a one-world totalitarian system for us all. Um, and I think it's on each nation to save itself and america is in a very very funny position because it's like a mongrel nation in right. the way that the european ones aren't right right that's why i the one thing i regret about the debate is that it didn't take place in zagreb where it was originally scheduled to take place and i really wanted to go to zagreb because i, I you know i i have people there i'd like to visit and so on and so forth but because i could have said to jared are croats white or are serbs white because they've been on the opposite side of a political struggle for a millennium now. And how do you explain this racially? There's no explanation. What is the difference between a Croat and a Serb? They speak the same language. They look the same. Their DNA is the same. The difference is religion. One is one group, the Serbs are Orthodox. The Croats are Catholic. And that has been one of the great dividing lines between East and West that had long-term consequences geopolitical consequences, which is completely inexplicable according to racial theory. As a matter of fact, most conflicts are completely inexplicable according to racial theory. What about the Hutu and the Tutsi? How do you explain that racially? How do you explain well, also, that conflict? I mean, also, there's uh, you were talking about state legislation earlier, and surely a Texan and a Californian are different because I can tell the difference between mm. someone from, from two different towns in Wales and, um, and this stuff matters. And it's really, really important to cling to this stuff. And I just, I've had this argument with people so many times that if what is white culture, what's white identity, what are you even talking about there? I don't think it points to, to anything in the real world. I think it, it had meaning for the South after the Civil War. It had meaning. The South was defeated. Uh, they, were, uh, they were having racial uh, mixing imposed on them uh, by the victorious North because they knew that this was going to subvert their entire culture. And they created a, a guerrilla war uh, in response. The guerrilla wars were known, it was known as the Ku Klux Klan the first clan was basically a reaction to reconstruction 
It was run by Nathan Bedford Forrest, one of the great Civil War generals. And it was basically to free the South from the Yankee invader. And they succeeded. They succeeded. And they created a system of segregation in order to maintain their power. And that system was doomed to fail. Okay. It, 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 over the long haul, maybe they, if they had given, given the chance, people, human beings will find a way of working out their differences together. So they should have been left alone. But that's not what happened because the Jews got involved. As I said, I've already talked about Leo Frank, the Scottsboro Boys, Jews from New York City trying to turn blacks into uh, uh, revolutionaries. Mm. The pr- triumph of that was the civil rights movement which basically took that weakness and basically used it to as a successful uh, overturning of the rule uh, of, of segregation in the South. Now, the people that grew up under that had an identity as white. That's true. They did. I, I met these people. When I gave the Sam Francis speech, uh, and Sam Francis, the white boy uh, who was a conservative, and then he became a white boy again after conservatism kind of uh, collapsed because he needed an identity and he wasn't a religious man. He converted to Catholicism on his deathbed, but he was not a religious man as a conservative. He needed an identity. And I said, I gave the speech uh, that was basically about the Jewish revolutionary spirit, and they were outraged. My wife was there. Sam Dixon was sitting next to my wife and my wife. He was going to storm the stage and lynch me. They're going to drag me out and lynch me, hang me from a lamppost if my wife hadn't threatened to hit him with an umbrella. But Sam, to his credit, called me up afterwards. And he said, look, I, I understand what you're saying. There was a difference between the North and the South. There was a difference between growing up in Philadelphia and growing up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. There's a difference. We have to take that difference seriously. And if you grew up in Tuscaloosa, you was, you was white or you was black. And this is what the, the uh, lieutenant of uh, Martin Luther King said when they came to Chicago, I forget her name now, but this lady says, down south, you was either black or white. There wasn't none of this Polish or Irish stuff. That's precisely the difference that I'm trying to make about the difference in the United States of America, where white was an identity in the south, but it wasn't in the north. You had an ethnic identity. You didn't live in white town. You lived in Germantown or Chinatown. Or Jewtown. Even in Chicago, there was a Jewtown. That's what the identity was like in Chicago. And that's precisely what Martin Luther King ran aground on when he came to Chicago. He didn't understand the difference between the North and the South. Hmm. I mean, I will say I was I was very interested in whether it's racial or sort of these ethnic issues um, two years ago. And now where we are now, it's it's almost like it's not a concern because the the things that I think we're facing are just straight tyranny from the elites. So I'd, I'd like to hop over and talk about truth and lies and logos. Now um, we've discovered over the last year, certainly in the UK, and I presume that you have the same thing going on in America where there are these government bodies and their job is to manipulate the masses by lying to them to, um, increase their fear levels so that they are in a state of compliance. So the the key example over here is that they made no distinction about who was at risk of dying of COVID. And they said, you're all at risk on these billboards all around the country. This is a lie. And they know that it's a lie. And they're confirmed, like it's in the minutes from from these um, 
from these meetings, you can verify that they knew that they were lying to the population, but they feel justified in it. Now, I think that this is, uh, well, Satan is the father of lies, and that's what I think we're dealing with here. Um, it's just a war of truth and lies at this point, and most of the world seems to be suffering under a mass delusion. Right. Plato talked about the noble lie that uh, rulers need to do uh, to keep people under control. Uh, but we're, we're talking about the biggest lie of the past 500 years, and that lie is known as science. And if you didn't understand that, there are people all around, during the Black Lives Matter thing, people, uh, uh, an example of virtue signaling in the United States where you put up a sign in your front yard and it says, um, love is love. That's promoting homosexuality. Okay, and then the other thing, uh, Black Lives Matter. Well, we knew that. Okay, and then the but the really important one is science is real. Okay, thank you for telling me that. Okay, because what you're really telling me is you don't believe it anymore. That that <laughs> when you have to say science is real, you know science is in trouble, and science is in trouble because they overplayed their hand and they're making claims that are not scientific in any way, shape, or form. We've already been through this with the uh, complete incoherence of Howard Stern freaking out because some people are not vaccinated, that he's threatened by that. That's completely <clears throat> incoherent. But the point I'm trying to make is that why, why do we have this crisis? Well, because you're confronted with two experts. Uh, let's, that's really not that way, actually. So you have an expert, and I give you a whole parade of experts. You've seen, probably seen them all. They list, they start listening to degrees. They got degrees from medical, this place and that place and the other thing. And they're saying, hey, the COVID is crazy. This is not science. This is not what's going on. And then you've got some $15 an hour guy at Google who trumps these guys and kicks them off the platform because he knows more about science than they do. Okay, so what do you do? What do you do when two, it's easy when one expert tells you to do something and all the experts agree, well, I guess you just go ahead and do it. But those days are long gone now. Now you've got two experts and they're conf giving conflicting testimony. What do you do? Well, you have to make up your own mind. But fortunately, we can do that because we're rational creatures and we have something called Logos. And that's in one of the reasons I wrote Logos Rising, to basically break through this scientific tyranny where some guy in a lab coat with stands up there and tells you this is science and you have to believe and you have to do what he says. That's not the way it works. We know more than that. Now we have logos and we can make up our own mind. We can discern the truth. And I think that's what we've been able to do during this COVID pandemic. We can tell when people are lying to us and people, when people are telling us the truth. So what has happened? Because, um, a couple of hundred years ago, the science and Christianity of Catholicism weren't in any way separate. Um, Gregor Mendel was a geneticist, right. Right. Um, is a good example of that. Um, and, and now the science, right. yeah, yeah, and, and the science appears to be uh, just a, a global bullying consensus. And I think a real turning point for the science was trans when the science was telling us that men can be women, right. Yeah. I, I mean, what is this and where did it emerge from? England. Oh, sorry. 
sorry, sorry, fellas, but uh, I mean, the English were majorly responsible for this. It became the whole conflict between science and religion in England during the 19th century and uh, the rise of Darwin. First of all, why did it happen in the 19th century? Okay, Hegel and uh, died in 1830, Goethe died in 1831, although it may be the opposite. Uh, and that was uh, a period of great philosophical thought, and no one was capable of carrying that mantle anymore. At the same time, you have in England the ability to travel uh, from one place to another, uh, the fastest way you could do it by horse, and then by the middle of the century, you're on a train and you're going much faster. And suddenly the steam engine comes along. This was a period of enormous technological breakthrough coinciding with a time of philosophical collapse. That's what happened in England. England was in the forefront of the Industrial Revolution. England was had the trains, you know, before Germany did. England was had all of these inventions. They had the spinning jenny. Uh, and they were ruling the world. They could turn out more cotton cloth than anybody in the world, cheaper than anybody. They Britannia ruled the waves. And, uh, and you had a very weak church at this point. And so there was a moment where they could have gone in the right direction. It was called uh, the Oxford Movement, uh, where basically the Anglican Church was thinking of reuniting with the Catholic Church. Uh, which have, when a, a real infusion of Logos uh, would have swept away an institution that only came about because uh, uh, of a looting operation known as the Reformation, where the the uh, the aristocrats wanted church property. Okay, we'll give you the title of the state church as long as you give us the property. That was the deal that created the Anglican Church. It was weak from the beginning, and they had a moment where they could have done it, and it failed. It failed. Read Charles Kingsley crucial guy uh, who got attacked Newman. Newman is the man, uh, Cardinal became Cardinal Newman. He, he threw up his hand and says, look, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to go down with a sinking ship. I'm becoming a Catholic. Huge uh, outrage. He was a traitor to his race, traitor to England by going over to popery. Awful thing to do. Charles Kingsley led the charge. And then, so what's Charles Kingsley proposing? muscular Christianity and that Tom Brown school days and we're going to preach he's going to have sports and we're going to, it's kind of an ethnocentrism not going to work but it's a stopgap measure and then you have Matthew Arnold who realizes it's not going to work and then you have Imperial uh, uh, Dover Beach great poem great milestone in English consciousness which is basically saying the the sea of faith is receding uh, I can see it you know, I can see it with my own eyes, but love, let us be true to one another. Well, that's always a good idea to be true to one another, but it's not a substitute for uh, the Catholic Church, Christianity, or any of the big, the big issues, and it didn't succeed. And so within a hundred years, you end up Leslie Stephen, the Victorian gentleman who read Darwin and gave up whatever was left of Christianity, but he said, I'm going to die a gentleman. Even if I don't believe in Christianity, I'm going to live and die as a gentleman. Well, maybe he did, uh, but his daughter was uh, Virginia, uh, was Virginia Woolf, and she completely capitulated on the moral realm. And so you had the collapse, the collapse.
the question is whether because I do believe there is this this massive overlap between ethnicity and and religion and that even if people don't believe that they believe anymore there's echoes from the culture and I I do believe as we head into a less Christian culture you see let's call them conservatives or right-wingers who don't think that they're Christian being appalled by the same things that you and me would be for instance cuties on Netflix or these um, or the actual abortion figures right right yeah Roger Scruton, mm. classic example of what I'm talking about, you know, who's going to, it just could not bring himself to become a Christian. He, 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 there's just something so melancholy about Roger Scruton at the end of, at the end of his life. Uh, mm. The man who did say, have nice things to say, he was considered a conservative. He, he was trying to preserve uh, English culture. He, uh, he, he had be- nice things to say about beauty, not really deep stuff. But this is this is precisely the English problem. This is this lack of depth. I mean, Roger Scruton's like the classic Englishman. He 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 was he went, he defended fox hunting. Well, God bless him. He you can see a picture of him there on his horse, you know, wanting to go off with the aristocrats hunting foxes, the unspeakable and chase of the inedible. That's that's the way he described it. Uh, and he's there on his horse and they I got what he wanted. You know, be careful what you pray for. He got the OB. He was knighted. And there he is at the end. Died, suffering from cancer. He obviously went underwent chemotherapy. All that bleach blonde hair has disappeared. And he's there, you know, bald. But he's wearing his medal there as he's ready to enter the next life. And what are you going to do when you stand before God? Is he going to address you as Sir Roger? Are you going to make sure he says you're Sir Roger? Do you see what I'm saying here? Do you, I mean, this is the tragedy. This is the tragedy of the English. You know, it, it, it's, it's. I mean, you know, you want to preserve. I would like to preserve English culture. God bless them with their fox hunting. God bless them. You know, it's a, it's a lovely place. I've been to the Lake District a number of times. One of my favorite uh, experiences is to, Go with John Beaumont and take a walking tour of the Lake District. You know, thinking of ourselves as latter day, it's like Wordsworth and Coleridge all over again. Uh, all we need is Loudenham, you know, mm. and then it, w- it would be perfect. I, I You want to preserve that. But the problem is that you, the means you have at your hand are not going to preserve it. That's the problem. It's not going to preserve it. Same thing goes in spades for the Irish. You need the Catholic Church to preserve your culture. The English, they need that Catholic Church to preserve the culture, and they're going to have to get over the fact that they destroyed the Catholic Church and had a 500-year run that is now uh, running down, over. Yeah, Uh, well, I agree with you. And actually, for the first time in my life, since all of this lockdown stuff, I have heard uh, English reverends speaking with fervor, speaking with real passion about what's being done to us. Um, and it makes me really excited. For the longest time, I've been very jealous of religion right. in America. Especially- there, is nothing, yeah. there is nothing incompatible with this kind of nationalism and Catholicism. There's nothing incompatible about it. The other way around is you had a state church and it failed you. It failed you. It failed. The state church has evaporated. The Protestant state church. Nor- Norway, Scandinavia, England, it's all evaporated. You can't do it. 
It's not the way it works. You need something bigger to save you. And this nationalism that I'm proposing has nothing to do with being white. Okay, you want to preserve English culture, Norwegian culture. I'm I'm on board with you. I agree. I want to preserve American culture. We have suffered. Take just give you one instance here. Type in Kensington. Mm-hmm. Street scenes, Kensington. That's not the Kensington in England, it's the Kensington in Philadelphia. And look, look at all of those zombies staggering along the street, addicted to heroin and fentanyl. My family came from Kensington. My wife's family came from Kensington. That was our roots, this working class neighborhood in Philadelphia. And it's been destroyed by the social engineers. It was destroyed years ago. And this is the result. That's not, that's not, that's not something we can tolerate. We have to be able to return to a, a system that takes care of its own people rather than offering them up on some altar so that we can project empire to Afghanistan. Hmm. And um, I suppose this overlaps with the the white nationalism thing. Is it you can't defend anything because you're still you, you you're still going to have to fight on that secular playing field. It's uh, because we've got such huge numbers of Muslims in this country. Um, people on this side of the aisle have been talking about Islam for a while, and you come to the realization that you can't fight a faith with a secular ideology. So we have the example of um, the, of people being attacked for the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, right? There was a woman in Speaker's Corner recently who wore a Charlie Hebdo shirt, um, who have uh, produced blasphemous pictures of both Muhammad and Jesus Christ, um, and she's there saying, this does we have british values of free speech and um and the way and the, i look at that and i'm like but you don't understand faith because you don't understand no. how passionately those muslims believe no, in Allah. First, of, first of all blasphemy is not a british value it's a jewish value and what you're really saying is you're thinking like a jew and you have a right to to ridicule god that's what you're talking about so the lady's crazy she doesn't understand what it means to be british Okay, there was always a sense of decorum in England that would never allow this kind of stuff. Well, what do you think the Victorian era was about? There was a huge, a huge moral reform that took place in England, beginning with Methodism in the 18th century, beginning with the Wesley brothers. And when, when Victoria became queen, it was a huge moral revival throughout England that led to a sense of decorum. Okay, you want a, a good example of that? Read Pride and Prejudice, because Jane Austen wrote that book right in the middle of that, right in the middle of that. And there was a this it's a it's a really good novel. It's probably one of the best novels ever written because of the way the form and the content come together. But basically, she has this moment in the middle of it where, you know, she completely mis- misread the guy Darcy, and she wakes up and realizes I was wrong, and the thing that that convinced her that she was wrong was Pemberley because it's beautiful. It was a beautiful estate and it was done tastefully. And if this guy can do something that tasteful and that beautiful, he must be okay. And there's some profound truth to that because what she's talking about, she doesn't have this vocabulary, but what she's talking about is transcendentals. And there are three transcendental characteristics of a being and it's the true the good, which is morality, and beauty. 
Those, these, the English understood this intuitively. They were never, they're never deep thinkers. That's the problem with the English. They're all superficial when it comes to deep, they can't do metaphysics. It's, they're constitutionally incapable of doing metaphysics, but they can produce beauty. And beauty is a transcendental on the same level with truth. And so in, in many ways, it was, the save, it was the salvation of the British that they could produce this, in some sense, a beautiful culture. And this is the topic of your of what you're writing about at the moment, isn't it? This is right. what your next book's going to be about. Uh, this, this would be brilliant to talk about now because you've already mentioned Roger Scruton, and I really do enjoy his contribution to um, to conservative thought because when it comes to architecture, it, I've, I've met people that had no political understanding that that just came out with it and said, yeah, if it, if the buildings look nicer around here, everyone would act better. And That's exactly just, right. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly the insight that I'm trying to convey here because beauty gives you access to God because mm. God is absolute being. And so the Brit the British had this, like British architecture is absolutely stunning because it took over Rome. They were imitating uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Christopher Wren and all those, all those beautiful buildings. Okay, that's precisely the point that I'm trying to make here. They're, the English are crippled when it comes to metaphysics, but they do have the sense of decorum. They have the sense of beauty that needs to be nurtured and brought together in some type of coherent fashion. That's what I'm trying to do with this book. The book is finished, by the way. And, oh, great. Uh, um, uh, it's being proofread, and then we're going to send it to the printer and so we can have this discussion in detail uh, when the book is out. Oh, that's fantastic. Sorry, what's it called? The dangers of beauty, the conflict between mimesis and concupiscence in the fine arts. Excellent. Now, so, you, uh, wait, wait, let me ask you, do you understand that question? Because I'm worried about the title. Do you understand oh, what I'm saying? Say it once more for me and I'll just sit on it. The dangers of beauty. That's easy. Yeah. The conflict between mimesis and concupiscence in the fine arts. Do you know what mimesis means? I don't, but it doesn't put me off reading it. Okay. It means imitation. Aristotle said art is imitation of nature. So there's a conflict between imitation of nature and concupiscence is your tendency to sin because of man's fallen nature, because of original sin. And I'm talking about a crucial moment in the development of Italian art when uh, the more realistic uh, you make a painting, the more uh, there's temptation involved, especially if you're painting naked women. And this is a crisis that went uh, had the Italians had to go through. But I think it, it has broader ramifications because I'm saying beauty, the true, the beautiful, the true, and the good are all uh, equal aspects of being. And so we have to deal with all of these in some type of coherent fashion. That's what I'm trying to do in the book. Mm, and I feel like what Roger Scruton was doing was pointing at that, but not, you know, without the religious belief to take it further or the meta. That's right. Belief. That's yeah. exactly the problem with Scruton. He he didn't have any metaphysical training. He didn't have any metaphysical depth. And he, in a sense, he became a, a, he's ethnocentric in the bad sense. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, there's nothing wrong with English culture, but it's not a religion. And if, if, if that's, if you're going to make it your religion, you're going to be unhappy. You know, you're going to go to stand before God with that little OBE medal there. And what's that, what good is that going to do you? I'm not going mm. to help you. Well, help what you. I find very interesting about Scruton as a thinker is with, within 
the sort of dialogue is I'm interested in anyone that gets labeled far right. But all Roger Scruton was really advocating for was put some effort into making buildings look looking beautiful. And at the end of his life, he got he got attacked as a racist. It was a completely false made up claim by some young journalist. But it just fascinates me that such a mild position was still being characterized as as far right, you know make buildings beautiful should not be considered on the extreme wing, but that's how far they've managed to go. No, absolutely. You've you've been taken over by a group of aliens. Every country, Mm. every country in in Europe has been taken over by aliens. Okay. So you have an elite whose loyalty is to the oligarchs and who hold their own people in contempt. That's true of every country in Europe. Maybe Hungary, you know, Hungary is obviously trying to fight a little bit of battle because nobody speaks Hungarian. And those guys are really, you know, they're on their own. Okay. Poland to some extent, but Germany, it's a disaster. Disaster. The elite there do not represent the German people. The elite who feel it's their job to send the German people to jail whenever they question uh, the narrative there. Terrible situation. And I'm saying, look, we just did... Uh, Sean Norton just did a review of a book on the BBC, and I forget the guy's name. Uh, He was a former BBC writer. Uh, But what he's saying is basically the BBC, the people who work there, they've converted to this oligarch ideology. Mm. It's not it's not English. It's not British. It's just this weird ideology that we can talk about, you know, Foucault, all these type of uh, uh, isms, uh, deconstruction, all these type of isms uh, that is alien. That, that it makes you think that you're somehow morally uh, uh, deficient because you're unwilling to call that fat Jew from Pennsylvania a woman. That's that's the absurdity that we have reached at this point. That's the well, absurdity. It is. And um, the polarization is really, really extreme. And I find that people just find them. So even if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, but if you want to call yourself a conservative, you're going to end up on a team with a load of people who do call themselves Christians. And a really interesting observation recently was that the leftists were relying on the Church of Satan um, for their for their fight um, to reinstate abortion laws in, te- in texas or basically right. they right. considered the church of satan on that side and I, and you're just thinking is that not telling you something at this point is yes. it not a bit obvious yes it is obvious and i put what, what i'm saying is that that is one side but the other side is that we are on the cusp of a worldwide dialogue based on logos the the, the american empire wicked as it was did set the stage for a worldwide conversation because the world speaks English now and we have the internet to talk to each other. And I am engaging in that conversation. I mean, I wrote Logos Rising because of my experiences in Iran uh, and India, which are two completely different situations, but the common denominator for the entire human race is Logos. And that's what we have to begin now. So, you know, you I can say Logos and I can tell you uh, that's normative because we are rational creatures. You have duty. You have a duty to be rational. And if you don't, if you're not rational, you are just cutting yourself off from any type of dialogue with anyone in the human race. 
And you can have an ideology that gives you real, um, allows you to virtue signal and feel good about yourself. But if it's not Logos, it's, going to, it's not going to go anywhere. That's the moment we're in. And I'm talking to people all over the world, people I would never, you would never think about. So I, I'm, on a, I'm on one of these podcasts and I say, you know, when I was standing uh, in Mumbai on the banks of the Ganges River, and some Indian writes to me and says to me, wait a minute, the Ganges flows through Calcutta. What are you talking about? So it was, I made a, a, a mistake. I, what I meant to say was Calcutta. I actually was on the banks of the Ganges in Calcutta. But that mistake allowed a conversation to start with an Indian, with a Hindu, that never would have taken place otherwise. And now there's a, a, a relationship there. And I'm saying this is happening across the board. But it's possible. I'm saying this is possible. This is the fruit of empire. It's not the exploitation. It's not like, like the classic example of what I'm talking about is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was the student of Aristotle. Philosophy died with Aristotle until St. John wrote the gospel. But the empire spread Greek language and Greek thought. And that allowed people who could never talk to each other to talk to each other. Same thing happened with the fall of Rome and the spread of Latin. The same thing has happened now with the British Empire being succeeded by the American Empire and spreading English language throughout the world. This is a moment of opportunity, and we shouldn't lose sight of it simply because of all the chaos we have to go through to get there. I don't know if this is exactly right as the conception, but is... The operation of Logos, with the examples that you describe there, it's almost like it always acts as a double-edged sword. So there's something that on the surface might look like a catastrophe or an evil in the world, but actually under the surface, it's um, it's allowing the uh, the spread of Logos. So an example that that I think would be interesting would be social media. So the social media platforms are run by by oligarchs who want to control us and are manipulating the masses. But at the same time, it's allowed so much truth to be spoken and so many connections to form. Is that another example of it? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. You could like, so what's the ultimate example of what I'm talking about? Of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Okay. The ultimate catastrophe. The, the Jews just killed God. <laughs> See, well, wait, no, he rose from the dead and then something new came out of it. I've already talked about the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, you know, being sold into slavery and that, that evil that was done to him enabled the Israelites to come and get grain. And he said to them, the evil you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. That is the, mo that is the movement. That is the movement of divine providence in human history. That's why it's mentioned in scripture. That is, that is the point of what we're trying to say here. And it's up to us to have the eyes to see it when it's happening. Cool. Um, can I ask you some slightly, slightly more far out religious questions? Sure. Um, so, uh, revelations. A lot of people have made the comparison uh, between the vaccine passports and the mark of the beast. Do you have a perspective on that? Yeah, it makes sense to me. Do you think it is the mark of the beast? Time will tell. I, I mean, it sounds plausible to me. I, I have never, we have never experienced a situation like this in human history where one small group of people can impose something like that on the entire human race. 
That is unprecedented. It could be the end times. I'm open to that possibility. Yeah. Uh, okay. And the the other topic that's um, I've recently listened to some podcasts or some interviews with Malachi Martin, and I, over the last few years, I've I've come to look at psychology as largely false, a waste of time. Um, and I'm, you know, you're you're a Catholic, so I you have to accept that demonic possession is a thing. Um, do you have a perspective on sort of exorcism and demonic possession in relation to what might be now termed psychiatry? Psychiatry uh, was created by Sigmund Freud, uh, but he got the idea from the Illuminati. This I go into this in my book, uh, Libido Dominandi, which is a history of psychology. And what he got, the, he got it from Adam Weishaupt, who got it from the Jesuits. And it's basically, he called, uh, Adam Weishaupt called it Zalin on a loser. Freud just, Freud read Barrowell's memoir. He simply took Zalin on a loser and turned it back into Greek. So psychoanalysis, Zalin is the Greek, the German word for soul. It was based on the Jesuits' examination of conscience. So there is, uh, followed by sacramental confession but it was perverted. Now, even in the perversion, there is still some benefit that can be derived. Okay, the problem is that people got into it for the money. Uh, Sigmund Freud, classic example, he wanted rich Americans to show up so he could tell them to give him money. He got into a competition with C.G. Jung, uh, and Jung, I think, won the battle. He got the richest Americans, and he was doing fine for a while. Uh, but there is a truth to it that needs to be brought out. Uh, through an analysis of what Freud did. Because I, I, I'm just talking with a, a Jewish buddy of mine who became a Catholic and told me that one of the greatest experiences he had was psychoanalysis. Well, I could give you a lot of people who didn't feel that way. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe, uh, Claire Booth Luce, where the psychiatrist was basically a vampire that was trying to exploit them for sex and money. Uh but there is uh, an element of truth there, and I think that's part of the dialogue that we're trying to engage in here at uh, Culture Wars magazine. You know, people from various experiences actually talking about their actual situation in light of principles that will make sense to them. So I think that there may we may discover something worthwhile here. I think that's an interesting point you've raised because um, the. <laughs> Obviously, you had your debate with Jared Taylor recently, so I've been interested in, in frankly, what I think they get wrong and what they, they push off the table. And um, one of these topics is epigenetics. So a lot of these guys will point to Jewish um, researchers or, or scholars in the field of epigenetics and go, aha, see, it's a Jewish science. But actually, you have to prove the Jew wrong as well, um, right. else it doesn't work. Right, right. I'm not. You can't just write it off. The Nazis tried that. They tried to uh, dismiss physics as Jewish physics. There was an argument to be. There's an argument to be made here about Einstein. I think there's an argument to be made. I think we've made. I think Bob Sengenis made it on the pages of Culture Wars magazine, where we're dealing with an ideology here rather than physics. That's something we should be able to discuss. Uh, but uh, uh, it's got to be discussed, and that's the whole point. And the problem here is you've got uh, Jewish organizations like the ADL who are trying to shut down every single discussion that they don't like. 
And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, you're going to cause violence. Because when you shut down the discussion, people feel hopeless, and then they, they pick up a gun and they start shooting people. Yes, absolutely. I think that a lot of the things that um, victims of the ADL and SPLC, a lot of a lot of what their victims talk about wasn't even taboo a couple of decades ago. You were able to talk about that kind of stuff, and now you can't. And the only right. thing that that can produce is is well, frustration, yeah. which will end in violence. Yeah, yeah. I just got I, uh, a lady boxer had her brains beat out and died. Okay. And it made the news. So I tweeted something like uh, something to the effect of this is this is uh, the logical outcome of feminism. You can beat women can beat each other's brains out for the entertainment of, of the masses. I got banned for saying that. Got banned. I don't know. Some type couple days banned from something or other. Uh, wait a minute. What am I allowed to talk about then? You're the one who brought it up. You put it on the news. You mean I'm not allowed to talk about what you put on the news anymore? It's gone too far. You overplayed your hand. There's going to be a reaction. Can't help that either there's a reaction. Either we set it up normally according to principles of Logos, where if I'm not breaking the law, you have to let me say what I want to say. Okay? Or the whole thing's going to go down the drain and there's going to be violence and you'll be responsible for creating that violence. Yeah, and there's an inevitability to it. So um, Jewish censorship was, was, I suppose, the example a couple of years ago or that's that's where the real fight was now it's medical information um and i've been i've been to some of these protests in london where people are getting really 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 desperate because we are being hidden the actual adverse effects to right. um, for this vaccine as they're about to march into the schools and say that they don't the kids don't even need parental consent anymore right. they, they've it's changed terrible. that and and the crowds are you know they're desperate at this point because they don't know what to do. And and yeah, this is one of the things that's that's very scary to me is that um, there's loads of people with loads of energy and loads of information, but almost no direction. And right, I I, I don't have any advice for them. Do you? Yes, logos, logos is rising. Okay. You have to I understand the implications of that. Okay, understand the implications of that. And suddenly you realize that, wait a minute, I have ground to stand on. If I have ground to stand on, I can push back. If you have nothing to stand on, you can't push back. Now you've got a firm metaphysical foundation. Even the English can have a firm metaphysical foundation for what they're talking about. And when your feet are planted on solid ground, you can push back. If they're not, you can't push back. That, that, that's, that's the crucial issue right now. Are you standing on solid ground? If you are, you can push back. Yeah, I mean, that's the feeling on, on the ground, is that there's one side who are in a small minority, but with the absolute conviction that they're correct on this one, and that no amount of coercion, you can take the pubs, take the clubs, take all of our bread and circuses away, we're not getting that jab and that conviction that I, I think yeah we're in the, we're in the last ditch okay the reason we're fighting this now is because they capitulated on jewish hate speech once that principle was established once you have a certain powerful group who can control the flow of information you have no defense 
That's the, that's the reason we're in this mess right now. We should have stood up at that point. We didn't do it. I, had, I was in a situation similar to situation in Australia. Australians are going to invite me down because we're going to take on gay marriage. Okay. And I'm trying to, so they're trying to get a group together and they say, we want to have me to talk about it because he's got the understanding, blah, blah, blah. I talked to one Australian after another and they just ran screaming from the room. Wouldn't, no, no sense of principle, no sense of unity because we happen to be Catholics. We're both Catholics, aren't we? No, that didn't work. And because they capitulated on that, you kind of cave in on gay marriage. Now you're being locked in your house with COVID. It's, there's a, a, a clear progression in terms of tyranny in this regard. Well, there definitely is if you've been watching internet censorship, because um, in 2019, it was hate speech. And then 2020, medical misinformation. Right. And it's the same people doing it. So what does that right. tell you? That's right. That's right. So we have to stand up and explain what is really going on and tell the people, you you have solid ground under your feet. You can push back because we're in the last ditch. Okay. If we don't get this thing right, then the lights are going out, you know, and we will enter uh, an era of tyranny uh, of the likes of which the world has never seen before. Okay. Um, I've recently had to wrestle with coming to terms with not being able to change people's minds. And the conclusion I've come to is, well, that's because God gives you free will. You have the free will to either choose or not choose. Um, but it's very hard to wrestle with the fact that so many people um, are just not going to look into true information. And in fact, the there's so many holes in the COVID narrative at this point that you could pretty much pick anything. And I, I could debunk this thing a million different ways, but people still don't want to listen. Um, and just how do you come to terms with not being able to change people's minds? Oh, I always change people's minds. So I, oh, you do. It's, you not a problem. Minds. it's not a problem I ever deal with. No, and a certain... <laughs> So at a certain point, look, I deal with this on a daily basis and I'll tr I'll get some comment on some platform or other and I'll try and deal with the person. I'll try and answer the objections. And at a certain point, you realize we're getting nowhere. And I just have to say, sorry, you know, if uh, why don't you read the book? And then you'd have much more intelligent questions to pose because you don't understand what you're talking about. And at a certain point, I simply have to say, I'm sorry, uh, but you're, you know, Try reading the book and then get back to me. Because you, you, I mean, God gave you free will. God is not going to violate your free will. Well, if he's not going to do it. How am I supposed to do it? I can't do it either. I have to have presupposed rational grounds for discussion and the fact that we're both looking for the truth. And if we're both looking for the truth, we will be able to find it. If you have some prejudice or you're deeply committed to something for reasons you're not telling me, there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, I dealt with this at the beginning of Logos Rising when I dealt with uh, the atheists, the four, the four atheists. Atheism is not an ontological issue. It's a psychological issue. And so when you're talking about atheism, you have to talk about the person's father because God is an exalted father. And the classic example of that among the atheists was Peter Hitchens. No, I'm sorry, not Peter. Christopher. Yes. Sorry, Peter. 
Sorry, Christopher Hitchens. still with us. Yeah. He's been a good voice in this fight, actually. As right, Peter he Hitchens. is. I, I, been, yeah. I'm a fan of Peter Hitchens. <laughs> don't, don't worry. He, I don't he, would profit, he would profit from uh, metaphysical training, but I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, he, he's... He's committed. Mean, he's, he's committed to. He's committed to uh, Britain. A Britain that is determined to uh, destroy itself. That, that's that's the power. It's very similar to uh, Roger Scruton in this regard. Yeah, he's he's taken the black pill as the internet vernacular. There's not a lot of though. He is a Christian, so I, so I yes. find it a strange position. Yes, because um, yes. it's not so hopeful. Yes, but Christopher Hitchens. I mean, this is interesting because they both had the same father. It's really, it, so how can that possibly be the explanation? Well, it's not completely the explanation because you live a certain life. And Christopher Hitchens had given himself over to a life of uh, sexual unrestraint. And that led uh, to certain consequences. So he ended up being, uh, you know, a favorite of that group of people um, uh, because he was promoting atheism. So that group of people really liked him. They promoted him and then he got cancer and he died. So, sorry, I, uh, I've missed this. Atheism, you believe that's just basically father issues manifesting. Right, right. God is an exalted father. And so, uh, actually, it's not my idea. Paul Vitz wrote the book, uh, Faith of the Fatherless. You can read his book. Uh, but that that's precise. That's the discussion I'd like to have with Paul Vitz, because I'd like to talk about the, the difference between Peter Hitchens and Christopher Hitchens, because the, the fr will free will kicked in here at a certain point. I mean, Peter was a, a flaming revolutionary he was over in Moscow and so on and so forth. But somehow he changed and somehow P uh, Christopher did not change, even though they had the same father. They're both predisposed because the father was, in a sense, a failed uh, figure. He was a, a war hero during World War II, and then the British Empire evaporates. They don't need the Navy that they had, and he ends up being an accountant. And so I think Peter concentrated on the war hero, and Christopher concentrated on the accountant whose, whose wife ran off, uh, and so on and so forth. It's interesting, dis interesting discussion. Is an interesting distinction. Um, right, I, I planned today to do an hour and a half, if that's okay with you. Um, so we've got about five minutes left. Um, and yeah, so I've been frustrated for a couple of years watching you appear on various other people's podcasts and, and looking at the comment sections and seeing thousands and thousands of people that don't get it. Um, and as you've already made clear, read the book. Uh, so many of their arguments seem to be based on a really low level understanding. Like you think race is a, I don't know, just, just these basic misconceptions. Right. Which, you actually, right. which you, yeah. Um, so the question is, where's a good starting point? Which of your books ought people to read first? Well, it would depend on your interest. Uh, so if you're interested in psychology, I'd say libido dominandi. Sexual liberation and political control was a really hot topic in 2019 with NoFap November, and a lot of people got on board at that point. Uh, it, it depends, you know, it depends on, on what, what's your situation. I, I have a history of economics, barren metal. I have a, I, I ha the Logos Rising is the most recent book. It's very abstract. It's a history of philosophy. But it's crucial because that's the, we've already talked about that. 
And now I'm doing a book on beauty and maybe that'll be a much more accessible book because beauty is much more accessible than metaphysics. It is. It's just no way around it. Most people understand God through beauty rather than through metaphysical argumentation. Although I, I know Indians who have converted to Catholicism because of metaphysical arguments. So it's hard to say. It's hard to say. There are also shorter books. Uh, you can, uh, it, it's hard to say. Don't yeah. ask me. I wrote the books. Ask someone else. Wrong person to ask. Okay, okay. My final question for you today is, what is a Jew, and can people accept your definition without being Christian? A Jew is a rejecter of Logos. You can't, they, they, give, they give all sorts of, they will try to say it's biological, DNA, have a Jewish mother. All of these theories have been contradicted. I've already talked about that. Oswald Rufeisen uh, had a Jewish mother. He became a Christian, which means he rejected the rejection of Logos. And then he went to Israel. And they wouldn't give him citizenship. Well, wait a minute. You just contradicted your whole, uh, your whole story here. That proves my point. The Jew is a rejecter of Logos. There's nothing biological about it. It's not, you don't have bad DNA. I don't believe in any of that racial nonsense. It's, you grew up in a system that was based on rejection of Logos, okay? And it led to revolutionary behavior. That's the milieu you're involved in. God will give you a chance to reject the rejection of Logos. And many Jews have. To the extent that the Jew is honest, he is rejecting the rejection of Logos. God wants a full rejection of the rejection, and that is when you accept the Logos incarnate as the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for and killed. Does that explain, is that definition, is that okay? Yeah, I, I think the example that you give really proves the whole point, is that if an ethnic Jew, a someone born to Jewish parents, gets baptized, they can't then move to Israel. Right. You just you just contradicted your whole biological DNA uh, seed of Moses explanation. It doesn't make any sense. And you know it. So I'm going to clarify the situation. I'm going to give the definition because you're not willing or incapable or unwilling to give it yourself. Well, this also is the way to avoid being a I know anti-Semite is a funny word, but a lot no, of no, 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 no. Sorry, you're an anti-Semite if they don't like what you say. Yes. I tried to give this argument. Oh yeah, well, the anti-Semitism is a word that was created by Wilhelm Marr in 1871, and it's purely racial in its orientation. I have repudiated racism, so you know that because I debated Jared Taylor. Okay, so I can't be called an anti-Semite, right? No, wrong. Because an anti-Semite is someone Jews don't like. It's that simple. There's no other definition. Do not enter into a discussion of anti-Semitism. It's a pointless discussion. It's a rubber yardstick. The crucial question is, is it a sin to criticize Jews? Are Jew Can we criticize Jews? Are they a special group? that can uh, no one is allowed to criticize. That is the crucial issue that we all have to face right now. And I'm saying, if you tell me it's a sin that, to criticize Jews, explain to me how Jesus Christ committed a sin, because he certainly criticized Jews. 
Well, I think that wraps up our discussion very, very nicely. Um, I think we've covered everything. Uh, tell people where they can buy your books. and we'll So go them. to culturewars.com or fidelitypress.org. All of my books are available there. Do not go to Amazon. Go to culturewars.com or fidelitypress.org and you'll find my books. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Nick.